Hey everybody, it's Chuck Marone. It's late here Wednesday night. We're halfway through our member drive. This is our member drive week. Uh, you're listening to our fourth podcast of five in this, uh, in this illustrious member drive. I'm recording this Wednesday night. We started out the week at 791 on our way to 1,000 strong. And I've got to tell you, the momentum is really good. We're actually over 900 as I sit here right now, which is right on schedule of where we need to be. Uh, we're doing well. Uh, that means that there's a, there's a handful of you out there. You know who you are. <laughs> uh, who listen to our podcast regularly, who read our blog, who support Strong Towns. You haven't taken the time yet to go and, and become a member. Please do that now. Please do that now. Go to strongtowns.org. Sign up. A base membership is just $25. It's within the reach of pretty much anybody. Uh, we planned it that way because we want you to become a member and sign up and be part of the Strong Towns movement. Today's podcast is a very special one with a friend of mine who many of you uh, know and have heard of, James Howard Kunstler. Jim uh, has written a number of fantastic books. He is a great thinker. He is been an inspiration for me for a long, long time and someone who, you know, I used to sit back and admire from afar and I'm just kind of amazed at my own good fortune that I'm able to call him up and chat with him from time to time. So here is James Howard Kunstler. Enjoy the podcast. Go become a member today. Strongtowns.org. Be member 1000, right? We're, we're that close, friends. Go do it. Take care. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. You know. His books, Geography of Nowhere, The World Made by Hand, and The Long Emergency. James Howard Kunstler has been a guest on our podcast a couple times, and I'm really thrilled to invite him back this week. Jim, welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. It is a pleasure to be here with you by teleportation in Minnesota from upstate <laughs> New York. We got a little wisp of snow this week. You guys there yet or not? We got some hail actually in September, but so far that's that's been all. And actually, it's like 70 degrees yesterday, so it's kind of Indian summer here. Yay. Nice. I want to get an update. Can, oh, by the way, can you say Indian summer now? I, we, we do. Native so American. I, <laughs> uh, I'm sure it will offend someone, but you know, okay. we're, we're just getting started with that. We have a whole, <laughs> a whole podcast to offend the world, right? The offensometers are turned up really high these days. I, I can tell you that. I totally hear you. I want to go back and, and review the long emergency and, and get kind of a 2015 update from you. And I, I want to start with the economy. You know, the stock market is up, unemployment's down, inflation is tame. We're told statistically that this is the strongest economy ever, yet the Fed refuses to raise interest rates. What's what's going on here? Is Are we in nirvana or a mass delusion? Well, we're kind of in mass delusion because uh, the authorities uh, who run our systems, especially the banking system and especially the Federal Reserve, uh, have used a series of gimmicks to turn the economy into a kind of a Potemkin economy. You know, Potemkin was the prime minister 
of Russia under Catherine the Great. And she insisted at one time to go out on a tour of the provinces. So he, he put her on a barge and took her down the river. And they went past a series of uh, villages that were all beautiful and spick and span and lovely. And it turned out that they were all false fronts constructed by Mr. Potemkin to impress Catherine the Great. And that's sort of what has happened to our economy. You know, meanwhile, the uh, the middle class is getting hollowed out in terms of jobs, incomes, households are failing. You know, there was an interesting piece in The Times this week about how the death rate for middle-aged white people has gone up astronomically. And of course, being the New York Times, they always miss the point, which is that, uh, you know, people are suffering so deeply from being in a, an economy that's not working that, uh, you know, they're getting deeply into drugs, they're killing themselves, etc. So I hope I answered your question. Absolutely. It's fascinating to me because, you know, we hear all the statistics, all the, the talking heads, and, and we're told that this is all great, yet under the roof, what you see doesn't seem to add up. I want to ask you about the Federal Reserve in specific, because Jane Jacobs in the 1970s kind of called them out in her book, I believe it was Economy of Nations, but I could be, I could be wrong. It was Economies the, and the Wealth of, of Cities. It, this was in the middle of the inflation you know, the end of Nixon, Ford, that kind of era. It seems to me like we have an economic system right now run by people who believe in a, a theory that really cannot be disproved. Well, they have a set of models that really don't comport with reality. Uh, you know, they're trying desperately to uh, double down on, on the models and the uh, policies that grow out of those models, and they're not working. And, and by the way, you know, the statistics that you're referring to, like the labor statistics that come out of the U.S. government, uh, I think it's safe to say that they're unreliable at best. You know, they're gamed, they're, they're, they're messed with. They don't really reflect the reality of people who can't make enough money to support their households. I want you to dive into that a little bit, because I say that to people, and people assume that we're talking conspiracy theory, like, oh, you know, some mastermind is sitting there gaming this like uh, it was Nazi Germany or something. But this is really just a bunch of people who want to believe something so strongly that essentially you come to a fork in the road and you take the one that uh, is most traveled, right? The one that looks the best to you. I agree with you. I, I, I don't think it's a conspiracy per se. I think what happens is that, you know, a society becomes threatened and distressed and uh, the people who are in charge of running the pieces of it do their best to pretend that it's working okay. You know, the basic trouble with the models of the Federal Reserve is that they're, they're really not based on an understanding of, of how systems work. And this is a, a complex system. And what they have succeeded in doing with all of their interventions and their quantitative easing and their zero interest rate policies is only make the fragile points of this system more fragile, especially where money is concerned. You know, the main sort of sin of the Federal Reserve is zero interest rate policy because it represents a basic mispricing of the cost of borrowing money. And the problem with that, it seems like a very, you know, abstract thing. The problem with it is that it thunders through the economy and when you misprice money, you end up mispricing everything, including, you know, financial assets, stocks, bonds, precious metals, commodities, uh, real estate, you name it. Everything is mispriced. The trouble with that is sooner or later, reality does intervene and reprices things at their reality based price. 
and that comes often in the form of what we call a crash. You know, it, it manifests in, in the form of a highly destabilizing epical event. That's unfortunately where we are now. We're, we're basically just cruising for a bruising, waiting for something to trip this set of instabilities and fragilities into criticality. We just got through the latest manufactured debt crisis, if we want to call it that, the, the political yeah. theater over the, the debt limit. It's fascinating to me because there's actually a line of thought that looks at a country like China, who has trillions of cash reserves and says economic you know, weakness, and looks at an economy like ours with 18 plus trillion now heading higher of debt and says strong economy. How do you reconcile that? And, and where do you think a country like China ends up in the next couple of decades? Well, I, I kind of think you're going to see, you know, an equal reaction to w what has already occurred, which is a hypertrophic uh, growth scenario. You know, you had this, this tremendous hypertrophy of uh, incredibly rapid economic expansion in China over a 20 year period. You know, for better or for worse, it was uh, generated with a lot of debt in a debt saturated world. And the debt is really the issue all over the world. It's it's a problem in China as well as in the U.S. and and Europe and and the uh, other so-called uh, emerging economies. And the problem really redounds to the question of energy. We're no longer living in a cheap energy industrial economy. And unfortunately, the industrial economy was engineered to only run on cheap energy and not run on expensive energy. And that's where we are. The, the way it relates to the financial system is that we've been covering up the rise in, in the cost of energy by generating more debt. In other words, it costs more, much more money now to get oil out of the ground than it did in 1980. And, uh, you know, since then, we've been using debt to sort of cover that up and, and really steal our income from the future to cover our current operating costs. The trouble is that we can't pay back that debt and we can't generate new debt that has any credible, plausible chance of being paid back. So we're, we're really running into the wall of our ability to continue living on debt and covering up our economic problems with debt. And it really just depends on, you know, how does that play out actually on the ground? Does it play out in, in a massive deflationary depression? Does it play out in governments hyperinflating uh, their, their currencies and destroying their currencies? And, and of course, when currencies are destroyed in inflations, you know, that's hugely a socially pernicious event. Uh, so I think the big arguments around what is the final outcome of all of this economic and financial mischief really depend on, uh, you know, what kind of scenario you can forecast about how it plays out. These things being nonlinear, it's a hazard to make predictions about exactly how they're going to work. Yeah, we, we don't really know the multiple ways in which things could unwind. We just know that the bridge is weak and eventually one of the trucks that go over it is going to collapse it, right? Yeah, and we don't know which cable is going to snap or which, you know, concrete deck is going to give way. You know, we just, we don't know that yet. But what I think we can safely say is that uh, the mischief has been epic, 
Um, it hasn't been a conspiracy. It was done in the name of really trying to keep a, a, an enormous system going that so many people depend on and feel rather desperate about. You know, th there are all sorts of collateral wishful thinking issues that go along with this. Like there's a, a major wish right now that we can somehow convert the gasoline powered car fleet into an electric fleet and keep happy motoring going. You know, that's that's sort of coming from the Elon Musk Tesla sector of society. And then there are, you know, wishful ideas about mining uh, minerals on the moon, you know, and things that really rather unlikely to happen. That's unfortunately where we are. The master wish, of course, is the wish to keep on driving to Walmart forever. That's the master wish in the American narrative at the moment. Right. And anything that serves that master wish is, you know, uh, an acceptable idea. If, if it doesn't serve that wish, it's generally rejected. I wonder how you look at all the the hype, if we want to call it that, or the propaganda or the uh, the meme, essentially, that's going through society that this millennial generation is different. And, and they're, they're not the driving to Walmart type. They're not the, the automobile type. They're asking for something different. And society is going to change as a result. Is that does that give you any optimism? Do you think that there's a threat of reality there? Or do you think that's a reaction to? I think there's a threat of reality. There, are, uh, There's no question that a lot of them rejected the suburban milieu that they were raised in yeah. and have moved to urban neighborhoods. I believe that a lot of it comes out of having been in college. You know, more people were in college in the more recent generations than ever before. And colleges are interesting in one particular sense that you and I you know, might think about is that they're very village-like. Right. You know, college campuses are very village-like, and it's the only time that many young people get to feel what it's like to live in a coherent, integral village setting. And when they come out of that, you know, they don't want to go back to some suburban wasteland. You know, they want to continue living in some kind of a village. So they establish their own in, you know, Brooklyn or, or the other up-and-coming urban neighborhoods. That's understandable. I, you know, I can understand how they've circumstantially evolved to not be terribly interested in cars. You know, they, they do have Uber after all, if they are living in cities, you know, you and I both know that it, there's some basic figure like $6,000 a year that it costs to keep a car on the road, no matter what kind of car you have or who you are. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, the number of Uber rides you could get for $6,000 is probably more than a year's worth. <laughs> so, Yes. You know, that equation has worked out for them. So are they different? Well, you know, I, I think that they have uh, – I think they are different in their orientation towards their living arrangements. But are they prepared for the kinds of uh, changes that I've been describing in my books, you know, the long emergency for a real uh, collapse of the current arrangements? No, I don't think they're prepared for that. And in fact, they're so hugely distracted by, uh, you know, the gimmicks and playthings of the day, including especially their phones, that, you know, one wonders if they have any leftover attention for even reflecting on that. I want to get back to the economy. R Russia, China, emerging markets, they don't seem very enamored with America and our kind of handling of this enormous privilege we have of being the world's reserve currency. I've seen moves that, that China has made, that, that Russia has made to maybe assert themselves a little bit more. Do you think that ultimately they're going to find kind of the uncertainty of 
a new system preferable to one where America has this enormous privilege that we are, are clearly abusing? Yeah, well, I, it's already happening. China is establishing their own parallel international monetary fund. It has a different name, something like the East Asian Bank or something like that. Right. Uh, I forget. The, but, the, um, the one know, that we told everybody not to join and then they joined? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so that's already happening. And, uh, you know, there's no question that the U.S. foreign policy has just done a huge amount of damage in you know, certainly in the Middle East. You know, we've just gone in and just busted everything up and destroyed institutions. You know, it's very hard to watch Vladimir Putin on TV giving a, an address to the U.N. and and not believe that he, you know, he's actually got a better grasp on reality than our own people. Right. Uh, he gave a speech at the U.N. and said, look, you know, do you know what you've done to the U.S.? You know, we we went into the Middle East and we destabilized every institution that was holding the Middle East together, and now we're surprised that the whole thing is crumbling. Yeah, I think that we've abused uh, our power. We've behaved badly. There are a lot of uh, hidden agendas involved, especially um, the control of the, you know, the, this tremendously important oil region of the world. But I think that the outcome of it is really going to be that the global economy, the globalism that Tom Friedman described in his books uh, 10 years ago, you know, at the, the dawn of the 21st century, uh, we're, you know, we're going to discover that it's not a permanent installation in the human condition. We're going to learn that the global economy was a, a set of transient economic relations that cropped up for particular special reasons, namely about 100 years of really cheap energy and about half a century of relative peace between the great powers. But right now we're creating tremendous friction between the great powers and especially China and the USA. And uh, that's going to affect our trade relations. It already is. You know, the, the currency war that is part of that set of uh, uh, foreign policy blunders that, you know, that we have precipitated uh, the, the the currency wars are in in and of themselves very harmful to trade relations. It does seem like things like running the straits in the China South China Sea, those things seem to me to be a little like nineteen thirteen esque kind of posturing. And, and I don't want to oh, over yeah. I don't want to overplay that. But you know, you read the stuff about pre World War One, and everybody was <clears> enjoying. <throat> happy trade and good times and this will never end. And, you know, within 30 days, the world descends into really the worst war ever. Yeah, it's really an amazing thing because that followed 100 years, virtually 100 years of relative peace, relative peace in the civilized world from the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, in, in 1814 to the great first world war in 1914. And it came as such a shock to people who thought that civilization had reached a kind of equilibrium and then you know they they enter this slaughter of the this industrial slaughter of the trenches it was just hugely demoralizing to western civilization and now we're doing the same thing of course it's a well-known fact that both the chinese and the russians have cruise missiles that can easily destroy our aircraft carriers and and the ships that attend them 
even as a, just a practical thing, it seems insane that we're going over there and taunting them. There are a lot of parallels because you look at like the ships of, of England back in those days and all of a sudden you have the submarine, this new kind of destructive thing that completely – I won't say completely negated the, the English fleet, but certainly – took it down a few notches from its dominance of just... Even, oh, it changed naval warfare, yeah, for sure. Yeah, a decade earlier, right. I guess the thing that, that freaks me out, and when I read about World War I, is I know how humans react to desperation. We're setting ourselves up for some really desperate times, and how mm -hmm. we react to that when we're out kind of provoking these other, obviously, you know, strong powers that we do not want to fight with, it seems to me like the economic hardship that we're facing and kind of the geopolitical positioning is part of that overall fragility. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, all of that uh, geopolitical maneuvering detracts from whatever resources we might bring to preparing for whatever the next economy is going to be, uh, you know, especially if it means a, a major rebuilding and reform of the systems that we depend on, you know, a major rebuilding of the places where we live, a major rethinking and rebuilding of our transportation systems, you know, major redoing of agriculture. You know, these things are all going to require an awful lot of work and an awful lot of capital and an awful lot of resources. And, you know, we're just spinning our wheels and throwing our money away into these uh, bottomless pits of, of Central Asia. And it's, you know, it's nuts. And politically, it's not very easy to be optimistic about the range of uh, characters who are aspiring to lead us. You know, certainly we can do better than Donald Trump. But, you know, where are the figures who might step forward, the credible figures of some gravitas and some experience who are who might step forward to take up leadership in America? They're not there. Right. I don't know where they are. I, I have a feeling that there are people who are capable out there, but they're just not stepping forward. And I have this this sort of idea or model about how societies work. If you can picture kind of a sine and cosine waveform, you know, that goes up and down in a wave. And there are just times when societies are really in touch with reality and times when they're really out of touch with reality. And we're we're really at the bottom of one of those waves. We're really out of touch with reality. We can't construct a coherent story about what's happening to us. And we are unable to make a plan about what to do about it. So, uh, you know, life is tragic, as I've said many a time in, in my college blabs. And um, life is tragic and, and history doesn't shed a tear for us if we make poor collective decisions. What do you think of the Bitcoin phenomena? I, I know you've been a little skeptical and I share your skepticism, but there is a little bit of momentum now for essentially a financial system, albeit digital, that would be separate from essentially manipulation by governments. I, well, I guess, what's your reaction right now? It's kind of complicated. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there's several layers to this. On the one hand, I, I think that you can make a case that as a practical matter, it, it's an interesting transitional way to deal with the financial deformations of the moment. The trouble is, I don't think it really has much of a future because I'm not really convinced that the Internet is a permanent installation. You know, it's working fine now and uh, we're enjoying it and using it. 
But it really depends on uh, the uh, you know a fragile electric grid and um, all of those server farms operating in an integral way. It is a kind of magic that we brought to the uh, to the late stage of the techno industrial story. But I'm not sure that it has a long future, and uh, I think it would be a mistake to invest our resources in uh, uh, digital money. There's a second consideration, which is the danger of governments removing uh, the cash from the economy and and making all transactions electronic, because what that means is, you know, they can track absolutely, absolutely everything that you do. They can uh, automatically withdraw taxes from your accounts without you, you know, giving permission by actually writing a check or you know, signing off on it. So the cash-free society that that um, governments are threatening to impose on us have a lot of downsides. And I'm I'm not really sure how uh, Bitcoin fits into that, but I, I could see that it, it would end up becoming kind of a serveling of that effort to remove cash from the economy, which would be a very dangerous thing for a lot of people. A lot of the outrage has gone away from the too-big-to-fail banks. You and I both know that this is not a problem that's been solved. Do you, do you think the next financial crisis is going to emerge from the banking sector like the last one or maybe be imposed on it, like, say, uh, from bad bets in the energy sector? How do you think that that fragility plays itself out? Uh, I think there's plenty of room for uh, a number of banks to find themselves in a lot of trouble. And there's already a lot of chatter out there, you know, on the net about various banks, HSBC and Deutsche Bank and and others, you know, being basically insolvent. And uh, a lot of this is tied into the into the bond markets and will depend on whether national sovereign bonds survive, you know, whether this whole portfolio of European bonds will survive, you know, especially the, you know, the Spanish, Portuguese, Italian bonds. Um, yeah, those those uh, those really risky bonds that are paying four, yeah, the, four and a half, five percent. No, they're not at four and a half and five percent. In fact, uh, the trouble with these uh, European bonds of the so-called pigs countries um, is that their interest rates are unbelievably low right. compared to the riskiness of holding them. You know, you, I'm not looking at a uh, Bloomberg screen right now, but uh, an Italian bond at under 2%, you know, an Italian 10-year bond at under 2% is is crazy. It's crazy. Because, right. you know, the risk the risk associated with it is so great. But, uh, you know, that's, that's what happens gaming the bond markets is that, you know, you're mispricing the uh, the cost of money and the and the price of borrowing and because of that you know all of that mispricing ends up only increasing the riskiness of those instruments and the the big banks of Europe are completely tied into the soundness of those bonds I'm kind of taking a, a roundabout way of answering your question but uh, th- there are a lot of ways that the financial system can go awry. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that it's booby trapped all over, you know, like a, it's like one of those bridges in a World War II movie where the, you know, the, the uh, commandos have placed charges in all the critical places and it's just ready to blow. Right. So it could come from anywhere. 
what's happened in the USA in particular is that a tremendous amount of um, capital went into the shale oil sector. It went in, into the shale oil sector in the form of high-yield, high-risk, uh, so-called junk bonds. And, um, you know, these, are, these were bonds that paid a lot more than the average uh, so-called, you know, safe American treasury bill or, or bond. Because the shale producers overproduced and sent the price of, of uh, oil plummeting, the companies who produce the shale oil are now unable to pay back their bondholders. And as that occurs, uh, you know, it's going to thunder through the, the American banking system. And the further problem is that the shale oil producers will not get new financing to continue the incessant drilling that they have to do in order to keep the production rate up. So the production rate in, sh in shale is already dropping. Uh, it's going to drop much more dramatically in 2016. Uh, they're not going to pay back their bondholders. A lot of the smaller shale oil producers are going to go out of business. And we'll see what happens within the banking system, uh, you know, when these bonds are defaulted on. I don't know that it's necessarily going to put any of the two big, so-called too big to fail banks out of business, but there's going to be some kind of damage in there. You know, things are going to blow up and it's going to be like, uh, you know, uh, uh, an ocean liner that's struck an iceberg and, uh, you know, we'll have to kick back and see. The, the unfortunate thing, so many people in the USA were sold on the idea that shale oil was going to make it possible to drive to Walmart forever. And in fact, the whole thing was kind of a swindle. You know, they weren't making money at $100 a barrel, and now they're really not making money at $40 a barrel. You know, it's going to feed back into the banking system, cause a lot of destruction. We're seeing here in North Dakota, well, just last week it was announced that one of the big players is quitting and selling out and getting out of the Bakken. We see a bunch of distress now for a state that has been enjoying this boom and, and really wants to believe that it's going to continue you know, what do you make of some of the consolidation in the industry and, and the likelihood that uh, we're going to see a restoration of, of boom times in a place like North Dakota? Well, there was a story in the paper about a week ago. With, I, I think it was Occidental. I'm not really – Yeah, I, I'm pretty I sure that was remember it. The company. Yeah. But they, um, you know, they had a holding uh, that represented what they claimed to be $100 billion worth of oil. And they put up all of the leases for sale at three billion, and they ended up selling the darn thing for five hundred million. Wow! Yeah. So, and they sold it not to another oil company, but to a private equity company. Okay. You know, which which uh, will probably you know private equity companies are notorious for really just going in, buying something cheaply, disassembling it, stripping the assets, and you know, and taking their profits. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that that's what we're seeing. The, the shale oil story has now entered the, pro the asset stripping phase of its history. There's a notion out there that we're going to have a new normal now in oil prices. We've got uh, Saudi Arabia pumping more. We've got Iran now going to rejoin the, the national, international market. We've got Iraq to whatever degree is, is online. And, and we've got all this American oil. Are, are we... You said years ago, and I, this kind of stuck with me, about how the oil crisis is going to be one boom and bust. It's not going to be 
a straight up or even uh, an incremental up, but it's going to be kind of an up and down, up and down with an upward trend in terms of price over time. Is this just part of that cycle in the long emergency? Yes, it is to answer your question simply, but I think that it's playing out actually a little differently than any of us imagined. And and what's really happening now is that we're settling into a kind of a low price scenario that people are mistaking for a uh, beneficial new normal. When in fact, you know, here here's the, the basic equation for oil is, is that over $75 a barrel in today's money, it destroys economies. You know, we cannot run industrial economies on expensive oil. And under $75 a barrel, it destroys oil companies because they can't make a profit getting the oil out of the ground at under $75 a barrel. So it's a real quandary. And what seems to have happened is this, is in the, you know, the interlude of the past several years since about 2012, 11 or 12, you know, when we, we had $100 oil or, or oil in the $100 range, that tended to really harm economies. And it certainly harmed the U.S. economy. The result of that is that, you know, there are a lot of people who really couldn't pay for oil and, uh, and went out of business. And, you know, whether they were companies or households or, or, or any module of the economy. And so what's really happening in the world is that the, the customers for oil can no longer afford to pay for the oil almost at any price. So you have a kind of a, a permanent deflationary depression in the oil industry and one that threatens to uh, put a lot of the, uh, the oil industry out of business permanently. So, uh, you know, one of the things that it tells me is that there's a lot of oil out in the ground there that may never get out of the ground because it's just too expensive to produce. Right. Uh, you know, any way you cut it, you know, the companies can't justify the activity and the economy cannot stand a higher price. So... It's a very confusing and confounding picture for people who are really putting mo most of their attention, you know, into watching the Kardashians on their phones. But Jim, the football season's going on. Well, and that too. So it's, people are very confused by this. They see $40 a barrel oil and uh, $2 and 20 cent gasoline at the pump. And they think, oh, that's great. You know, it's going to benefit the U.S. economy. But in fact, all it's really going to do is, uh, uh, destroy the oil companies. And then, you know, we, we may have another round of high, of high pricing temporarily simply because the supply will be so constricted. But, you know, there, there's also the possibility that it just, it will do so much damage to the banking system that the banking system will fail before the oil industry uh, fails and before that part of the economy fails. That's why I pay so much more attention to the financial system, because of all the systems we depend on, it's the most fragile. Right. And yeah. And whatever happens, you know, whatever happens in the world of money is going to end up, uh, you know, feeding back into everything else, whether it's agriculture, transportation, land development, uh, industry, everything. Yeah, it's the one that has become the most distorted in a sense. Well, and also figure that it's become more than 40% of the economy. Right. You know, whereas it used to be 5% of the economy um, back in, let's say, you know, before, before the first oil disruptions of the 1970s. Back in the 1950s and 60s, you know, which is kind of the, of, uh, the American industrial, uh, you know, the summer of American industrial life. Yeah. 
banking was about 5% of the economy. And and it was really pretty simple. They It was based on the 363 principle, where you borrow money at 3% and lend it out at 6%, you know, and make 3% profit, right. and get on the golf course at 3 Right. And um, bank presidents were wealthy, but they weren't that much more wealthy than other people. A couple months ago, I followed in your footsteps, and I actually had a debate with Randall O'Toole, which I should have learned. Oh, God. <laughs> I did it to help out the city of Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. But it was fascinating to me because I'd seen your debate with him. He opened up our debate with a whole long monologue about autonomous vehicles. And he seemed to be sold on the notion that autonomous vehicles are going to transform the world and make everything great and be a prosperous America again. If we've got libertarians of the Randall Tool ilk basically out pimping autonomous vehicles, what what's going on here? What, what's well, I think it's very funny. Yeah. You know, like a few years ago, there was a, a previous iteration of the computerized uh, highway idea. And, and that idea, which came out around 2005, was the idea that the highway would be computerized and the cars would have computers in them and we'd be able to much more efficiently, you know, move the cars around. So that has kind of uh, uh, evolved into this idea of the driverless car. You know, what I said at the time back then, I think it's still true that if you consider that right now, at any moment in any part of America, maybe 5% of the people on the road are only pretending to have insurance, right? <laughs> right. I mean, what happens when, you know, only, you, you know, 5% of the people uh, on the computerized uh, autonomous car highway are only pretending to have computers in their car? Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, is it going to work? I don't think so. I The whole thing's a joke. And, um, I think that we're kind of looking in, in, at the wrong things in the happy motoring uh, picture because the real action is not so much in how the cars work. It's more a matter of the financial part of the picture. Americans are used to buying cars on installment loans, meaning they, they need large sums of borrowed money to get the cars. And what's happening is, you know, the, the, the very class of people who buy cars, uh, you know, on a mass basis, the middle class, are being crushed. Right. And there are fewer and fewer of them who are credit worthy. And at the same time, because of the shenanigans in the banking system, uh, where we're facing problems of capital formation, that is, you know, we're not really saving money. We're not really accumulating real wealth. We're just kind of gaming uh, paper notional wealth into existence. And so what we're going to see is that uh, impaired capital formation and capital shortages is going to meet the shortage of credit worthy borrowers who can buy cars. And it won't matter whether they're electric cars or gasoline cars. Americans simply won't be able to afford to buy them in any way. You know, they'll have to give them away or, you know, they'll have to be some entitlement program. Right. Uh, which I don't think is going to happen. I actually so, saw a couple of weeks ago an 84-month auto loan. <laughs> you could get – I mean we used to do houses with a seven-year balloon, right? I mean th this, is, yeah. uh, this is as long a loan as banks used to be able to take risk on real estate. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, the, it just shows uh, that the gaming and desperation that had formerly been placed in the mortgage – module has now shifted over to the auto loan 
sector. Right. And, and you know, this is a notorious thing. We, this has been public knowledge for years. Uh, it's notorious that the car loans have been getting jankier and skeezier, you know, and, and that they've right. been securitizing these things the same way they were securitizing the janky liar uh, mortgages back in 2006. So, right. you know, we're, we're cruising for bruising there, too. That's just another one of those uh, inflection points of, uh, you know, fragility that that the system is riddled with. The long emergency you talk about the economy and energy and and the third leg of it is i don't know if you call it climate change i the term that i remember that i really found fit my worldview was climate weirdness and you described essentially an unknown future with much less confidence than the scientists describe today some may call you then a skeptic although i tend to uh ascribe to the Nassim Taleb world where you, you don't really know what outcomes you're going to get when you mess with complex systems. I, I wonder if you're thinking that this has become even more of a side issue now in the sense that we really don't seem to have any credible way to even talk about it. Well, I would agree with you about that. You know, there are a lot of weird things going on that ought to alarm people. You know, there there's a kind of a weak spot in the Gulf Stream that's established itself off of Greenland. And, um, you know, that seems to be affecting the jet stream in the northern hemisphere. And, uh, you know, we I said in the long emergency that we we really didn't know whether we were in for uh, global warming or, or a new ice age. But, uh, you know, the the planet itself has seen, you know, many iterations of climate change. And my argument with the whole thing is that it doesn't matter whether it's caused by human activity or not. It's, it's really a question of something's happening, Mr. Jones, and you don't know what it is, do you? Right. It's only going to aggravate whatever else occurs. It's only going to aggravate everything else that is in the picture. It's going to, you know, we're having problems with uh, population overshoot and the inability of regions of the world to support their populations and and mass migrations of those people and conflict and war and the failure of economic systems and the breakdown of trade relations and uh you know those are the larger geopolitical issues that uh are in one way or another entwined with you know questions of uh climate and questions of of geography and and uh the larger planetary ecology issues so i don't know if you can say anything conclusive about it except that there's an awful lot going on out there and you know we're not prepared for any of it i saw a fascinating argument last week that i, I had seen in one form but not this explicitly and it it was dealing with the run-up to the next round of of climate talks the argument went something like this the amount of carbon that every countries should be able to consume is proportionate to their population and proportionate over time. And if you say, well, okay, that seems like a, a fair allocation. The argument then the next phase says, well, America and really Western civilization has already chewed up more carbon by multiple factors than what their share would be. And essentially it's now time for, for China and India to have a go at it and, and everybody else to essentially go carbon zero, zero emissions, you know, understanding our politics here and just the, the, the happy motoring reality, this doesn't seem like a conversation that's going to lead to any type of 
workable policy. Does it to you? I mean, are we, is a workable policy anywhere in even like the haziest wish right now? Or is this just not something that's going to happen? It's not, it's something that's not going to happen. Yeah. 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 We're not, there's not going to be any policy. There's not going to be any protocol. You know, if there was one, uh, you know, um, many nations or perhaps all of them would cheat. So, you know, the whole thing is preposterous. What, you, you know? Cheat? You mean like Volkswagen? You know, I'm not terribly concerned with that. I, I'm not terribly concerned with, with, with the, the minutia of carbon emissions uh, and the formulas for, you know, yeah. for dealing with it. I, I think that uh, the problems that we're having with uh, the other things we talked about with energy and economy and, and finance are so severe that they're really going to kind of obviate that whole issue. You know, I think that we're going we're heading into a timeout from the hyperactivity of uh, the last 150 years and uh you know it, it's going to seem like a depression uh, you know perhaps a depression that's greater than the depression of the 1930s but really what it's going to be is a, a winding down and stepping back and a timeout from what we've been doing and it may go on indefinitely it may and it may actually you know i think that there's a pretty good chance that, uh, you know, we're going to go medieval. Yeah. Did Volkswagen surprise you? Because I have to say, it, it did not surprise me. When I read what had happened, I thought, well, of, of course that's what they did. They, they had a test that they had to pass that was written down. You have to, when you're sitting here, it's got to be able to meet this kind of emissions. And so they rigged an engine that would do that. And then when it was actually operating, go the other way. And I thought, well, of course, everybody teaches to the test, right? I personally, I was surprised because it's a tremendous fiasco for this company. No and doubt. No, uh, no doubt, you know, that we don't know whether they'll ever overcome it. So it was such a risky behavior that, uh, yeah, I was surprised that they took that risk. It was a it was a company destroying risk. And um, we'll see how it plays out. I'm guessing, though, and I'm just going to I'm going to say this without, you know, I'm not intimate with the auto industry, obviously, but I would put forth that I don't think Volkswagen is probably the only one doing this. I mean, well, yeah, maybe not, but, uh, you know, the, uh, my general principle would be that at bottom, uh, it's always best to avoid lying because lying is almost always discovered and found out no matter how elegant the lie is constructed. You know, in this case, a computer chip that allowed a workaround of a, of a, an emissions test. Right. But I think lying is a very dangerous enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, liars, almost always get caught and they got caught and it, that's just a really bad business decision and a, it, it would be a bad personal decision for people to lie generally. The university system in this country seems in many ways very tied to our national identity, maybe not as much as NASCAR and NFL, but you know, we like to pride ourselves in being an educated population and, and we've kind of wrapped up the American dream and all that in getting a, an, an education is the university system in this country going to be one of the last things to, to go? Or is it going to be an, an earlier casualty of the long emergency? Well, based on my experiences last week, I think it may be an early, one of the earlier things to go. I think it may already be gone. Yeah. I gave a lecture at Boston College. and I saw that. Uh, I went out for dinner with about five faculty guys after, uh, afterwards. They were all race, gender, and privilege uh, experts or specialists. Imagine that, you know. <laughs> How many of those do you need in, in one college? But um, 
I, I started talking about the benefits of, uh, of the black underclass learning how to speak English correctly, you know, and being taught in the primary and secondary schools to do this. And, and my belief that uh, they weren't being taught and that uh, there wasn't sufficient emphasis put on it and that the, the mandarins in the universities were actually militating against that in all of their, you know, multicultural diversity programs. And so they went back. And then I got I was subjected to the, uh, you know, defamation by social media treatment where and it was funny because it was done by a woman professor who wasn't present at the dinner. She right. just heard about it. Right. And so she, you know, she put out a Facebook or a tweet thing saying that I was a villain. And, um, you know, I had to defend myself. So I wrote a blog about it. But, I, you know, there's some conclusions about that that I, I think you can come to. And one is that the university system is just destroying itself with idiotic ideology. And it's driven by, uh, you know, uh, an agenda that's just gone completely off the rails. Anyway, it's out of control in the universities, and it's become a, a, a complete distraction from the actual idea of studying real things. Well, let me ask you this. When do the students, you know, burn their student loan certificates? I mean, that, that's the thing to me that just seems crazy about all this is that we have this, you know, this bubble world uh, that exists divorced from real economics, really on the backs of people who – we're expecting to be the next generation of successful people. We're expecting them to be the next generation of people who bootstrap themselves and make investments and become good American entrepreneurs. And they're getting out of school with professional degrees with tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. This, this doesn't seem to be a workable economic model. And the linchpin to me seems to be the, the post-secondary education system. Well, <laughs> The, the PC hysteria that's going on on the campuses lately is tied to the college loan racket. And I think it's important to understand that college has become a financial racket as much as any other thing in our society. You know, medicine is the other big uh, kind of bad boy in the picture. But both medicine and education have become total financial rackets. And one of the problems with it in education is that, you know, they're no longer – really uh students they're customers and the customer is always right right <laughs> so you know you you have you have a lot of 19 year olds you know with a lot of half-baked ideas basically starting uh you know a lot of pissing matches around the, on the campuses and ha having nothing to do with reality or with uh, the study of anything meaningful but you know there i think the administrators live in terror of these kids and they also live in terror of the the faculty that they've assembled that uh you know is is uh creating all this uh, ideology and propaganda so it's a pretty bad mix I, i'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been a, a a movement um provoked by twitter whereby a message would go out on social media saying on uh november 30th all of us millennials will stop paying back our college loans right? and we'll do it as a mass movement and uh, a mass protest. I'm surprised that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. You know, apart from that, the, we, we've uh, we have victimized these students who have taken out enormous loans and they have no idea how they're going to pay them back. And, I, you know, I, I doubt they will be paid back ever. And it's just another component you know, it's just another point, inflection point of fragility in the banking system that we've created a trillion dollar 
uh, college loan debt bubble, and we have no idea how it's going to be resolved. And it's already reflecting, as I said, on the quality of education and the idiocy of, of what's going on in academia right now, which really is arguably as bad or worse than the kind of witch hunts that went on in colonial America in the 1600s. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's every bit as hysterical and nutty. So, yeah, I think that the university system is already um, kind of cracking up. I want to ask you real quick about CNBC. I, I, I don't have cable and I have not watched the Republican debates, except when I'm traveling, I, I did catch the last one, the one on CNBC. And I had to laugh at the reaction, not only of the Republicans, but of, of other news outlets. They seemed outraged by the kind of mindless babble that, that came from the CNBC people. And I thought, do, do these people ever watch CNBC? I mean, that's pretty much all it is. <laughs> what, what was your reaction to the, the CNBC outrage? I actually didn't see the CNBC debate. I saw a couple of the earlier ones. Yeah. But I, I didn't see that one. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Obviously, elections are always theater to a degree. I mean, you even go back to Jefferson and, and Adams and you had some theater involved. But is this just the modern age? I mean, am I being an old fuddy-duddy at age 42 here by just thinking this has become a joke? Or is this crazier than, than historical norms? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, these things always are, there are degrees of, of theater and degrees of nuttiness, but I think that we're in a very low point now. And, uh, you know, the, there's almost nothing that, there's almost nothing real that we're having a conversation about that, that is a coherent conversation. Yeah. I mean, even, even the immigration issue, which I do consider to be a real issue. And, yeah. and I think that there's something to talk about. You know, I do think that, the U.S. is not obliged to let everybody in the world who wants to come here come here, um, and and we do have the right to establish, uh, you know, uh, policies and quotas, uh, et cetera. It's such a sensitive issue that even Donald Trump hasn't been able to talk about it in a coherent way. He can talk about it in a kind of theatrical, hysterical way, but uh, you know, he can't sit down and say, "Well, you know, we we really ought to reform our." Our immigration policy, much as we did in 19, in the mid 1920s, right? You know, in the in the mid 1920s, after a, a 50 year orgy of immigration after the Civil War, you know, uh, we we decided that maybe it was time to take a time out from immigration. Probably a good idea, right? And we did. Um, and there was a consensus that formed about it, and you know, it, it actually didn't involve a whole lot of hysteria. The in fact, that's that's one of the interesting things about how a useful consensus does form. You know, an idea bubbles up and a lot of people realize, you know, well, that's probably a pretty good idea. And then the consensus solidifies and then you you have an action or a policy as a result. But we can't do that now. You know, the the, the conversation is too fraught with uh, accusations of racism and, and et cetera. So, uh, we're, you know, we're not even Donald Trump is not going to provoke an intelligent, coherent discussion about that. And, you know, everything else is just sort of noise. You know, the, the old abortion stories and, uh, you know, it's all noise. Right, right. CNU is going to be meeting next year in Detroit in June. And you and I have run into each other at, at CNUs in the past. We're both new urbanists to one degree or another. I, I wonder if you... Are going to be are, are planning to be in Detroit and what you kind of 
think right now today of, of, of the current status of the new urbanist movement, one that, uh, you know, you, you and I have both historically been involved in? Well, I do think that the new urbanist movement is in a very important part of the picture for the reason that it, it's really the only organized group that I know of that has come up with a set of ideas that really might prepare us for the changes that we face. You know, the, the new urbanist movement is specifically dedicated to uh, reforming the way we inhabit the landscape. And it's needed desperately because the damage that we've done to the landscape and to the human habitat is just so epic that uh, there's no question that we're not going to be able to continue living in it. You know, this these this nation composed of suburban wastelands is is not going to be able to continue to live this way. And we desperately need to reform it, reshape it and invest in changing it. And they the new urbanists had a really good program for doing it. It, it really involved a return to traditional modes of settlement that we already knew about. It didn't require any, you know, reinvention of the wheel or anything like that. It, it really required a, um, a dedication to uh, traditional things that we already understood. They did a lot of great work in the 1990s and beyond into the 21st century. I think what's happened is that because suburban development per se has kind of stepped back and there's not that much of it uh, anymore since the the blow up of the housing bubble in 2008 that uh, the new urbanists haven't really had any uh, uh, visible battles and it's kind of they've kind of, they've kind of stepped back and to a, to a certain extent the good work of the new urbanist movement was accomplished through a kind of theater that took place in the planning boards and the zoning boards where, you know, uh, we were really able to kind of theatrically overcome bad law and change it and change policy so that, so that you could build places that were, would be worth living in rather than just building, you know, mandatory suburban sprawl. But, uh, a lot of the opportunities for that theater have, have, um, evaporated because they're simply, aren't that many more fights about uh, land development out there and the, because there's not just not that that much more going on. I don't know how they're going to move forward. I, I think they have a very good template for helping us prepare for living differently. Uh, as I said, they're one of the few groups out there that have put together any kind of a coherent set of ideas about it. But uh you know, right now they seem to be in a kind of uh, malaise, not not really knowing what to do next. I think it will require kind of a crisis mm -hmm. uh, for for the country to realize that it really has to start moving on 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 changing the way we live, and that will require a couple of things. You know, a, a real visible failure of suburban life, and to some extent, a failure of the giant metroplex cities that, you know, w one of the mistakes that people make, I think, is that they think that if suburbia fails, that everybody will move to the cities. And, <laughs> right. And, no. and it's, I think it's a, it's an understandable mistake. Right. But I think the cities are in just as much trouble as the suburbs as they're presently constituted because they've acquired a 
scale that's not consistent with the energy and capital realities of the future. Right. And the cities are going to have to change too. They're probably going to have to contract. And the contraction is probably going to be painful. And it's going to probably generate uh, battles over who gets to inhabit the the choice neighborhoods, uh, the valuable places near the old centers and the waterfronts and the railroad lines and all the other infrastructure of value. Uh, there are going to be huge issues with the failure of skyscrapers, which are obsolete buildings because they're not going to be renovated because we're not going to have the capital to do it. And we're not going to have the modular building materials to, to do it. So that's going to be a problem. The financial model of, of the condominium structure for, for large buildings and, and homeowners associations is probably going to fail. And that's going to be a huge problem. You know, it's, a, it's kind of an experiment. We never did it before. Um, we were on this, uh, uh, the uphill slope of acquiring all of this debt in our society. And we have no idea what happens on the downhill side where debt unwinds really catastrophically. And I think what's going to happen is that we're going to see that homeowners associations are going to fail. This was a this was a process called the deconstruction of the rights of real estate, yeah. where, for example, you know, you have a megastructure and you divide it up into 150 apartment units that are each individually owned and each person owns a little part of this megastructure. And um, you have to form an, a homeowners association to take care of it. The old model was you build a big building in the city and you're a landlord and you collect rents for 50 years. And, you know, about every generation or so, you spruce up the building and, and fix it a little bit. And, you know, uh, maybe every half century you have to do a major renovation of the systems. Right. But but it's still, you know, one landlord who is responsible for the maintenance of the building. What happens with the, the condominium model is that you have all these uh, individual owner, this hypothetical uh, property owners association. But if only a small percentage of the um, condominium owners uh, get into trouble and can't pay their fees and can't pay their mortgages, the homeowners association fails. And then nobody takes care of the building. Right. And then what happens? You have this, so we've never tried. Yeah, you have this collective action problem. And I, I hear people say, well, Chuck, you know, they own the place, so they're going to take care of it. And I said, well, what if taking care of it is no longer a good investment? I mean, what if that neighborhood is has gone bad and the property's not worth as much and the cost to fix it is more than, you know, what you could reasonably make elsewhere? I, I think we're so used to building all at once to a finished state and expecting our places to just live under glass without any evolution that we've not planned for uh, the next stage, right? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, this particular model of financing property has never been tried before. Right. And it was tried under very perverse circumstances of a, you know, a rising debt mountain. And, and now that we're, you know, we've crossed the, uh, the summit of the mountain and we're heading on the way down, you know, we're in for all sorts of unexpected outcomes. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I think people are going to be shocked at, at the failure of that model. And it's going to it's going to be a big thing for the cities that are now successful. You know, the places that, you know, like when you go to New York City, as I did about a month ago, and you see the tremendous, uh, you know, activity with the cranes hoisting up these 80 story condo buildings and, uh, you know, and, and the perversity of it and the misallocation of resources in in doing it. You know, they're only being built because. There's uh, a demand from 
foreign money, you know, from people in China and, and, and Russia and other places where people want to get their money out of their country and put it in some kind of an investment. So they're buying these, you know, $50 million apartments in New York City. And, and they're, you know, so the demand for these build these new buildings has been pretty brisk. Right, right. But, you know, it's an extremely artificial market. And um, they're see-through buildings, meaning nobody's living in them. They're just, you know, people have bought these things as investments. And, uh, you know, they depend on this this condominium model of financing. And, you know, I I look at it and I say, you know, I I think that, that, uh, you know, it's a tragic picture. Because it's a it's a picture of a system that really is is going to crash and burn pretty badly. So, the I guess what I'm getting at is that you know we're going to have a lot of trouble with some of our more apparently successful cities. You know the cities that seem to be booming now are going to are going to be hurting in a, in a while. Right. I, I had this weird experience a couple of years ago where I was walking across Central Park from a hotel on the west side of Manhattan to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I realized you know, walking across Central Park, that it had never been in such good condition in my lifetime. Everything was absolutely immaculate. Every blade of grass, you know, all of the structures had had been renovated and rebuilt. All of the, you know, the fabulous little follies that uh, Frederick Law Olmsted built in the original park, you know, the dairy and the, you know, the little, the little funny little buildings, they'd all been fixed by the Central Park Conservancy. Yeah. And I realized this is all because of the financialization of the economy, that so much wealth had been uh, concentrated in Manhattan, uh, well, in New York and Brooklyn, actually. Uh, and, and all, you know, so much of it had actually been sucked out of other parts of the United States in the process, right? Right. You know, the park was immaculate. All these skeezy neighborhoods in Manhattan, like the Bowery and, you know, Dumbo and Tribeca and et cetera, et cetera had all been renovated, the Lower East Side, they'd all been turned into, you know, hedge fund uh, uh, settlements. It's all because of the financialization of the economy and that we had reached the kind of height of that model, of that of that era, right. and that we were actually heading down, we're done and we're heading down the other side of the slope now. And you can see it happening in New York City now. That was all under Bloomberg, uh, you know, Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And now you can see what's happening under Mayor Bill de Blasio, that things are, you know, on the verge of unwinding again. And it's the first symptom of that, of course, is the friction, you know, between the police and the the black community in New York. Right. And, you know, and the rise of the murder rate. And, you know, we're once he- once again heading up into a into a problem with crime in New York. And that's going to, you know, that's going to create a certain climate for continual continued investment. And, uh, you know, I think we're on the, the we're going to be heading down the shady slope again into a new era of uh, uh, the city kind of unraveling again. So we 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 have been through this tremendous era of renovation in New York City. But these things are cyclical and and, um, you know, we're heading down the other side now. I just think that, uh, you know, Manhattan is overburdened with skyscrapers and uh, it's not going to survive that problem. It's going to it's going to be an enormous problem that I I don't see how they can overcome it. You have just turned in the manuscript for World Made by Hand, Volume Four. I I know it's due. Yeah, out and in final. June, and I'm really excited. That was going to be my first question. Is this the last one? And oh, yeah. uh, do you kill off Brother Job? Can you tell me that? 
No, I'm no. just kidding. You don't. <laughs> Talk a little bit about number four and when it's going to come out and, and where people are going to be able to get that. Well, um, I had always planned on writing one book for each of the four seasons in the World Made by Hand series, which is a, a set of novels set in a post-economic collapse America. And uh, so this is the last one. It's set in the springtime, which is kind of a time of uh, deprivation, uh, sometimes known as the six weeks want in, uh, in Adirondack lore. And, you know, a time when the, you're beginning to exhaust your store of provisions from last year and the new crops have not had time to grow. So there's, you know, there are no peas in the garden yet and you're running out of corn and cornmeal. This is the final one. And uh, the villain is, uh, oh, God, I don't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I don't want you to reveal too much, but I, I, what I'm hoping is we can have you back on again next year when it comes out, because I, I, I've so enjoyed the first three. The last time we chatted was about book number three, and I, we had a really good conversation. And I think people are interested in, in how this whole thing ends up. And like I said, I'm, I'm rooting for Brother Job. He's one of my favorites. So I, I hope he Brother makes Job's it Brother Job's a alive. hero. He is, but not your standard uh, no, as hero. As strange right? as he is. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brother Job is uh, in my novels, in these four novels, Brother Job is the head of a Christian cult. And it's kind of ironic because I'm totally non-religious. And in fact, when I was a newspaper reporter, uh, I specialized in investigating religious cults. But uh, as I envisioned the future, the survivors of this economic collapse would be much more kind of dependent on the remaining uh, social infrastructure after the corporations uh, and the schools and all the other st structures that they hung their lives on were swept away. And, you know, really very little remains but the church in one way or another. So he's the head of this evangelical cult. Um, and But he's an interesting character. I, I, I like to refer to him as a sort of boss hog meets Captain Ahab. Yeah. You know, he's He's comical and ridiculous, but he's also kind of, you know, he's very strong and he's, he's kind of dark. Yeah. So he's a lot of fun to spend time with. And I, I've had a good time with him. Well, World Made by Hand, number four, due out in... Coming out in June. June, From yeah. the Atlantic Monthly Press. Excellent. You'll come on the podcast again next June and we'll, we'll talk about that, right? Yeah, sure. All right. I'd be happy to. Well, I, I've taken up more of your time than I planned. I, I really appreciate the update on the long emergency. If you don't mind, I'll say we'll write again soon, huh? You bet. That sounds great. <laughs> They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. 
The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah, 